So the verse that the kids shared with you guys this morning is from Acts 3.19, as they said. Acts 3.19. And um, it's, it picks up on a really key, um, key theme that throughout Scripture, and that's the theme of being restored to God. And that coming through uh, the window of repentance. Um, repent, turn to God, that your sins may be wiped out and that times of refreshing would come from the Lord. And it's, it's just such a beautiful promise. It's such a beautiful verse. And it lands in a context um, in, in Acts that I think just enriches it even further. And, and we'll dive into that a little bit this morning. But just by way of the way that it fits in the, the full scope of Scripture, um, and we, there's just too much to kind of really get into all of it, but really this idea of repentance is something that um, is, was a key message of the prophets. Um, when, when Jesus came, uh, what, what did Jesus preach? He preached, repent, for the kingdom is near. Uh, the kingdom is at hand. And so there's a nearness to us that Jesus speaks of, um, of this, this concept. He's saying there's this idea of repentance is coming into its fullness. And we see that happening. In this, this verse, we, we see a demonstration of that really powerful idea. Um, the background of that within Acts, out of Acts 3, is the story of the lame beggar. And so we've got this lame beggar sitting at the city gates. Peter and John um, went to pray one day. They met this lame man on the way. He held out his arms and asked them for alms. And this is what Peter did say. And this is the easiest recap, by the way, that I've ever had to do of, of a chapter in the Bible. Silver and gold have I none, said he, but such as I have give I unto thee, in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. You guys know that song? Yeah. We sh oh, should have had the kids do that song. And that would have just really kind of tied it all together. Anyway, um, so what happens next? Well, like the song says, he went walking and leaping and praising God. Walking and leaping and praising God in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And so all of this walking and leaping and praising God that this guy does starts to gather a crowd because people knew that this guy had been, this was the man who'd been sitting at the city gates for decades. And here he was, like up on his feet, and not only standing up, but demonstrating full use of his, his limbs, his running around, shouting for joy, causing a stir. Um, he's gone into the temple, which is something that previously he... Um, According to many commentators, as somebody who was crippled, he, he was um, considered um, defiled. And so he wouldn't have been able to go into um, certain parts of the temple. And here he is just walking around like clean and whole. And so these people start gathering and they say, man, look at this guy. And look at Peter and John, these people that healed him. And immediately Peter like, starts setting the record straight and he says, whoa, hold on, guys. And he takes all the attention off of himself and John. He takes the attention off of, off of this layman. And he says, guys, this guy is walking because of Jesus. He's walking because of the man who you guys crucified. 
It's him that's, that's restored this guy. It's him that's healed this guy. And just in a, like a beautiful um, move, he kind of turns the attention onto Jesus and, and paints this beautiful picture of who Jesus is. And part of that message to them is saying, you guys killed the author of life. He describes Jesus as the author of life, and he says, you guys are responsible for this. And he, he, he kind of really paints this picture for them of like how they're complicit in this act of destroying the author of life. Um, and then we pick up in Acts 3.17, and this is where his sermon kind of turns a little bit. So he's, he's really kind of built up the tension for them, which, um, you know, people who teach and preaching, like good preachers will try to build the tension, and, um, and he does that. He builds the tension, but then he brings resolution, and that's, that's where we are in the thing at this point. And so we're reading from Acts 3.17, to 4 verse 4, so we're kind of jumping over into the next chapter a little bit as well. It's quite a long uh, stretch, but I'll read it for us. But it's really cool, um, you know, what, what Paul says to Timothy, um, de- devote yourself to the, the reading of scriptures. And um, it's, it's great to have like a slightly chunkier piece of scripture and to really read that together. So I'm reading from the NIV, and it says... This is Peter speaking. Now, fellow Israelites, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did your leaders. But this is how God fulfilled what he had foretold through all the prophets, saying that his Messiah would suffer. And so here he introduces another name. Uh, Josh spoke about the many names of Jesus that he used last week, and he, he introduces a new name. Um, he, he, he speaks of the Messiah would suffer. He says, repent then and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out, that times of refreshing may come from the Lord, and that he may send the Messiah who has been appointed for you, even Jesus. Heaven must receive him until the time comes for God to restore everything, as he promised long ago through his holy prophets. For Moses said, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your own people. You must listen to everything he tells you. Anyone who does not listen to him will be completely cut off from their people. Indeed, beginning with Samuel, all the prophets who have spoken have foretold these days, and you are heirs of the prophets and of the covenant God made with your fathers. He said to Abraham, through your offspring, all peoples on earth will be blessed. He's basically saying, you guys are that that offspring, but he's going to point to something bigger than that as well. And then he says, when, you, when God raised up his servant, he sent him first to you to bless you by turning each of you from your wicked ways. And then into chapter 4, he says, the priests and the captain, this isn't Peter speaking anymore. This is Luke speaking. Luke says, the priests and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees came up to Peter and John while they were speaking to the people. They were greatly disturbed. They they were really mad. This is kind of like a serious understatement. They were really ticked off. Because the apostles were teaching the people, proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. They seized Peter and John, and because it was evening, they put them in jail until the next day. But many who heard the message believed, so the number of men who believed grew to about 5,000 The first thing that I want to pick up on in this text, if we're looking at the text as a whole, 
Peter preaching, the people responding is this, is that we cannot truly repent unless someone shows us the way. If we're, if, if we're blind, if we're, if we're uninformed, if we're ignorant, as, as Peter says to them, we can't, we can't repent because we don't know which way to turn. By nature, the very idea of repentance is changing direction. Repentance, the, the Greek word for repentance is metanoia, and it, it means to change. It's kind of it's where idea of metamorphosis and directional, and so it's like we, we're, moving, we're moving in a particular direction, and we see this is not the direction, and we change, we move in a new direction. It makes me think of when, when I was about 11 years old in South Africa, where I, where I grew up. In South Africa, there's this thing called felt school. And what felt school is, is um, felt is, is basically bush, and it's like bush school. And when uh, kids are in seventh grade, it used to be that they would ship all these kids off to the bush somewhere, and then you'd have this experience of like doing all of these outdoor things in the woods and like in the fields that you wouldn't typically do as city kids. And um, it's like canoeing and uh, building shelters in the woods, and then you have to sleep in them overnight, and, and just like, all sorts of really, really fun things. Part of that was a, a hike where we went up and we were kind of traversing this plateau. But for whatever reason, on that day that they'd planned this thing, um, there was this thick, thick, thick fog that rolled in. And the, the guides that we were with was saying, you know, just stick to the path. As long as you stick to the path, we'll be fine. And I don't know why, we, why they even decided to like, keep, go ahead with this thing, because the whole point of going there is to appreciate this really amazing view. Um, picture the Grand Canyon, um, except not as big and more beautiful. And that's, that's the, this, this canyon. And so it's a big tourist attraction, and people have to go there. And they take us up there, and we're following this path. And uh, invariably, as would happen with 11-year-old boys, myself and a few friends kind of lost sight of like whoever was ahead of us and ended up on the wrong path. And while these guys said to us, just follow the path, what they failed to tell us is there are paths that intentionally lead to the edge of the plateau um, so that people can look out on this, this grandeur. And here we are on this pathway that's, that's heading to like a sudden drop. And um, fortunately, one of the guides who was behind us kind of caught sight of us through the fog and was like, whoa, guys, careful, this is not the right path. It's going the wrong way. This path like, literally heads off the edge of the cliff, and you, we don't want to be on this path. And I, I remember finding myself like, really drawn to like, carry on with the path because I want to see what's, what's at the end. Like, surely, you know, it's, it can't be that. It's just like, no, no, let's... Let's just turn, turn back. And when, uh, on another day, uh, when I went back there, my, my first reaction to the place was like, whoa, this is beautiful. My next reaction was like, 
when I, when I got to the edge of that, that cliff and I looked down, I just thought, oh, my goodness, I'm just so grateful for that guy <laughs> who saw us and, and said, but I don't think I was in the front of the line, so probably the guy in front of me would have just disappeared and then maybe I would have. But, but I, I mean, I was just thinking, gee, that was really awesome that that guy was there because I do not want to dabble on the edge of the cliff. I do not. When I looked down there, I was just like, that's not something I want to play with. And, and Peter is kind of that voice to these, to these people. And so this crowd is gathered, and he's, he's saying, saying to them, guys, you guys, you find yourselves in a dangerous place. You're heading down a road that leads to danger. And, and he says, it's not your fault entirely. Like, you're in the fog, you know, you, you guys acted out of ignorance. You didn't know um, that he really was the son of God. Like, I mean, it's kind of this, I told you so type of moment. But he's like, you acted in ignorance. Your leaders acted in ignorance. And then he says, but God's going to use this as well to his benefit. God, God already saw this coming ahead of time. And he's, he's just worked this into his plan in a beautiful way. And so Peter's this voice pointing to the way. He's not the way. Peter is not the way. He's very clearly saying, All right, guys, I'm not the way. But he's pointing to the way. And like as he kind of builds this tension with them, you kind of lead, led to feeling like, man, is he just leading them on this massive guilt trip? And is that really, is that the heart of repentance? And I think that's a mistake that a lot of people make, is a lot of people feel like, yeah, repentance is feeling really bad about what I've done. What I've done. And there is, there is a role that um, remorse plays in repentance. Remorse is important. But Paul, Paul reminds the, Corinthians, the, the Corinthian church, the church in Corinth, he writes to them and they've done like all sorts of, they've just gotten up to all sorts of mischief. And he writes to them and he says to them, guys, what you need is not a worldly sorrow. You need a, God, a godly sorrow that, that leads to salvation and leads no regret. So he says a godly sorrow will cause you to repent in a way that leads to, leads to salvation and leads, leaves no regret. But he says, beware of worldly sorrow because worldly sorrow leads to sin and death. And it seems counterintuitive. It's like, man, but how, what is, where does the difference lie? And I think... I think for me, there's, there's a, a dangerous place that we can find ourselves in where we feel really, really bad about bad things that we've done. So much so that it leads us to change our behavior. And, and we get to this place where we, we've reformed our behavior. We've reformed like our moral grid, we've, we've changed what we do, but unless there's an internal change, unless the change has happened within us and not just a behavioral change, we're still on a trajectory of sin and death. And that's where, that's where worldly sorrow is really dangerous. Godly sorrow, on the other hand, leads to a change in attitude, a change in internal direction, a change in um, a devotion and love. And that is what Peter is steering the people toward. 
Um, I don't know if you guys have ever experienced this phenomenon of going on vacation and then suddenly getting sick on vacation. And there's like this, people talk about, like, man, um, seems like every time I go on vacation, I get sick. Or you speak to someone, how's your vacation? Oh, I got really sick. And it, you kind of, it seems like, man, why would people get sick when they go on vacation? Like, you're supposed to be, like, life is very hectic and busy and, uh, you know, lots of stuff going on. And then you get to vacation and, the, like, all of those external things are no longer plaguing you. You should be in this place where you're healthy and happy, right? Yeah? Except it doesn't always work like that for many people. And this is, it's a... Uh, it's not just a, um, uh, what's the word? Um, it's not just something that people observe casually. There's actually been studies done on this, and it's true that people get sick more often when they go on vacation. I think part of that is that people have, like there's an internal tension within us. There's an in internal stress that builds up over time. And that internal stress, that internal tension, um, it, we suppress it and we, we ignore it. We find ways to, to kind of wash over that, but we don't really get rid of that. And when we go on vacation, I think uh, very often we can no longer ignore that. That stuff, the stuff that we should be leaving behind, is suddenly we bring it with us on vacation and we've turned away from the busyness and everything that causes us the stress and tension. But the stress and tension we bring with us. And, and then it kind of manifests itself in us being sick, or it manifests in ourselves like having a fight with our spouse, or you know, something like that. It leads us into like manifestation of this brokenness. And that kind of internal tension, that internal struggle, the, the shame, the brokenness, like, we can trace that all the way back to Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve, they do like the inexplicable thing. They disobey God. They eat the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And they find themselves in this place where they're like, oh man, like the shame. And like we're naked. And you know, suddenly they're, they're shameful. And what does God do? He, he sheds blood and he covers their, their nakedness. He covers their shame. And... Um, and that's kind of like the way that through Scripture, there's, God has made allowance for us to deal with the brokenness, not just psychological stress, tension, and that sort of thing, but the real root of that brokenness that's within us. Um, but really, it's kind, of, it's kind of like those animal skins that, that God put over Adam and Eve. It's... For the most part, it's an external thing. And you like fast forward to the, the Israelites in the wilderness, and they're there, and God says, I want to dwell with you, I want to be with you, you need to build a tabernacle. And what's the theme of the tabernacle? The theme that he, that he instructs them to go with in, in the tabernacle is all imagery from the garden. And it's palm trees, pomegranates, and like 
the, the lampstand is shaped like the tree of life. And there's, there's all this inference and reference back to the Garden of Eden. Why? Because God's mission, his goal is, is to restore us to that place where we're in perfect communion with him. God so badly wants us to be intimately restored to him in relationship. Yet, with the whole tabernacle thing, it was an imperfect thing. It's a, it's a picture. And along with that came this whole sacrificial system where the people were defiled. They were inherently um, unworthy of coming into the presence of God because of this brokenness that they carried within them. And so it, it required cleansing and washing and all these um, rituals that they had to, had to go through. And the house, housewives and house dads, like people who stayed around, were like, oh, that's my life. Like every day the house just keeps getting dirty and I keep having to wash it. And that's kind of how it was for the Israelites. Like their hearts were just perpetually dirty. For mankind, our hearts are perpetually like in this state of brokenness. And God, God wants to fix that. That's the thing that God wants to deal with. And that's what Peter is setting up for them. Peter's setting them up in this place where he's saying to them, guys, there's, there's something broken. You guys are in a dangerous place. We've got to fix it. Um, and really he's saying our behavior is not going to do that for us. And so the goal of repentance is to restore us to God. And Peter, in his, um, in his call to repentance and in speaking of the effects of repentance, this is the, the same language that he refers to. is the language of cleansing, the language of, um, of being washed. And uh, the, the biblical language for that is to be consecrated, uh, to, be, um, to be anointed. These are terms that the Bible uses to describe being cleansed before God, to be set aside for him for, for good purposes. And that could be for the tools and implements and that sort of thing that we used in the, in the temple and all of those things but it could be used for people who needed to come into God's presence to, to serve him and, and perform those rituals and those rites and, and come into his, in order to be able to come into his presence. And all of that stuff was super elaborate, um, and they had to be really careful with all of that stuff. But what Peter, Peter does is he employs that language, but he, he takes it beyond that, and he points it not just to a process, but to a person. And he says to them, repent. And he specifically then says, turn to God. And it's not just turning away from something. It's not just turning away from our sins, but it's turning to God. And he says, repent, turn to God, that your sins may be blotted out. Um, William Barclay, an old Bible commentator, tells a really cool, uh, gives a really cool picture of this. And he says, in, like, in ancient times, um, the ink that they used to write on papyrus or whatever it was that they were going to write on didn't it didn't have it wasn't an, it didn't have an acid base so it didn't bite into whatever it was that they were writing on and what that meant was people who you know if you had a, a record of debt with someone um, and you went to them and they forgave you that debt they could 
literally take a sponge and they could wash that debt off the papyrus. And they could clean it. And they could start the accounts all over again. And, and that is kind of the picture that he is, is talking about here, is our sins, the sins that are written upon our hearts, the things that we look at and are ashamed of, not just the individual acts, though, not just things that we've done, but uh, the condition of our heart, the very condition of our inner being. He says that gets washed, that gets cleaned in repentance. As we come to Jesus, as we come to, come to the Lord, he cleans us, he washes us. Then he says, gives a second reason to repent, and he says that times of refreshing may come. Come from where? May come from the presence of the Lord. And, and again, it's this term refreshing, speaking of like being refreshed, being cleansed, the, the action that the kids use, like splashing water on your face. It's like a cool drink on a hot day. It's relief. And relief from what? It's relief from the tyranny of that cycle of, man, I've done, like, I'm stuck in this pattern of sin. I'm stuck in this brokenness. This, this has got a grip on my life. Uh, something that should be serving me I'm enslaved to that thing, it's just killing me, I'm in pain, and then suddenly it's like, man, I've just found relief, I've just found refreshing in the presence of the Lord. And then thirdly, and this is where Peter goes beyond what the old dispensation was ever allowed to offer, and that is that there is one, he says, that... um, that, the anoint, that he may send the anointed one appointed for you. And for us as we read this, this is, it's a beautiful picture. It's saying, man, Jesus has died and he's resurrected and he's coming again. And that's part of, that's part of why the, the, the priests and the, the leaders of, of the temple were so mad because they were, they were preaching this Jesus is... He is the one who is the anointed one. But for, I think for us to really kind of understand what a, dra- what a bomb Peter dropped in that moment, um, it's, it's good to understand some of the history of that term. And so the anointed one, or your translations might say Messiah, it might say the Christ, it's, it all means the same thing. And the, the first time that this is used in, in Scripture is um, in a prayer that uh, Samuel's mom utters when she finds out that she's going to have a baby, that uh, Samuel is going to be born. And previously she was in this place where she was barren. She, was, she, could, not, uh, have, she could not bear children. And she came humbly to God and, and, and pleaded with him, and he heard her prayer, and he, he allows her to fall pregnant. And then she, and in that place, she, she felt like she um, was derided by her uh, wife, her husband's other wife. I don't even know what you would call that. Like, what is the, the relationship if, in a polygamous relationship? What, is, what are the wives' relationships to each other? Sister wife. Sister wife that's it. Okay, so 
her sister wife was kind of giving her a hard time. And, and she, she prays this prayer, and it becomes an incredibly prophetic prayer. Um, it's, it's prophetic in the sense that it sets up the book of Samuel, but it's prophetic in the sense that it sets up a developing theme that would play out through Scripture, and, and Peter picks up on later on. And that, that is this. She says, those who oppose the Lord will be broken. The Most High will thunder from heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king. Is that what? There, there is, at this point, there was no king in Israel. Who is this king that she's, that she's talking about? And exalt the horn of his anointed. And that word, his anointed, in the Hebrew is Messiah. And that, the transliterated into English, that word is Messiah. The literal translation of it is the anointed one. And so when you, got, when you hear the term Messiah, it's talking about this, this holy king. It's talking about um, a ruler who would come, who would bring justice, and who would bring correction, and would allow wholeness to be expressed through his people. And, and so... Uh, the, the Greek translation of that is Christ, Jesus Christ. And I think so often we become casual with that word. And we, Jesus Christ, um, as has been said so many times, we so often just kind of see it as Jesus' last name. It's an identifier, but it's more than that. It's, um, it's not just like Jesus Jones or Jesus Smith or Jesus LaRue. It's like, oh, Jesus Christ, that one. No, Jesus of Nazareth. Of Nazareth is his last name. Jesus Christ is a title that means that Jesus is the one who would be able to fulfill and break the pattern of sin, fulfill this desire for God to restore humanity back to the garden, back to this place of perfect peace, back to a place of perfect communion with him. That, that is fulfilled in this one man, this guy who was sent to the cross, whose blood was shed, not just for an external covering that would cover us from the outside, but so that a deep, deep work could be done within us. And so the prophets preached this thing, um, but there was, also, there was always something limited to that. Jesus, Jesus himself said, Jonah, he preached repentance. He preached repentance to the people of Nineveh, and the people of Nineveh actually turned the most debased and evil people that we as Israelite people could imagine. But he said, if, if, the peop, if you people of Israel only knew that someone greater than Jonah was here, and so Jesus was saying, there's a fulfillment of repentance that's, that's greater than the kind of repentance that's offered to us when we turn away from idols and we do, we do a ritualistic cleansing. That was good and that was beautiful, but there's a new day. There's, there's a new way. And that, that way has come. And that's exactly what Peter says to the people at that time. He, says, he, he makes it personal and he brings it home for them. And it's... He, he demands a response, really. It's kind of like if somebody were to come running in here and, and shout, like, guys, guys, it's raining outside, it's raining outside. 
And that's exactly the response that we would get, is everyone would just sit and stare at him, because it's Portland, nothing new. But if somebody were to come in and, and shout, guys, there's a fire, there's a fire in the building, what, that would require us to get up off our feet and do something, unless we wanted to put ourselves in serious danger. And that's what Peter is saying. He's saying, here, in this place, right now, for you guys, in this present time, he brings it home for those people, and he says to them, repent then and turn to God now. Think about how you need to respond to the situation in this moment. Um, there's, for these people, there was this like, beautiful picture of the whole of Scripture pointing to that point because there was all this hope that had, had been built up for the people of Israel in this Messiah is going to come. And we can, we can for those people at the time, they could look at that and they could say, yeah, that's like theologically and it's an interesting statement and like look at it as like oh, it's raining outside. Or they could really say, man, if he's the Messiah right now and he's died for our sins and we need to respond, like we should respond. And that's exactly what they did. It says that 5,000, the, the believers numbered 5,000. But for us today, if we bring it home for ourselves and, and, and we look at this, this picture of Christ, who is the anointed one appointed for you, and each one of us listen to that and say, okay, he's anointed and he's appointed for me, what do I do with that? How do, how do I respond? If repentance is not just feeling grief, if repentance is not just uh, behavior change, how, how do I respond to Jesus in a way that goes beyond those things? And I think the clue to that is in the very word that they use to describe the people who turned and were blessed. And, and it's, they described, this is before the, like any time that, pe that people refer to as Christians, they just, they, they just said believers. And that is the core of our response. Our response to Jesus is a response of faith. Even right now, Jesus is speaking into each of our hearts. I think the words of Ezekiel just ring really true where, um, he says, I'll sprinkle clean water on you. You'll be clean. I'll cleanse you from all impurities and from all your idols. I'll give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I'll remove from you your heart of stone and give your heart of flesh. And I'll put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. And I, I really believe that, that like, these are words that Jesus speaks to us that your, your heart can be changed. The, the very inner depth of who you are can be shaped by my love. The very depth of who you are can be shaped by who I am. And, and that is opened up for us. So that, that was opened up at the time of Jesus' death and resurrection, and that's available to us even today. It's available I think we take for granted our ability to, to come into the presence of Jesus, to approach the 
throne room of grace boldly to be able to, with joy in our hearts, forsaking all us, just be able to walk into the presence of God and enjoy Him. This kind of life of faith, this, this life of giving ourselves fully to Jesus, I think it awakens in us a number of things. And I, I think of things that burden us and cause us to be tired and how those things are removed from us when we walk into this, this fullness that Jesus offers us. You know, it, um, it's not that our lives become perfect. If you look at, G, the, at Peter and John in this instance, they they're living fully to please God. They're living fully for Him. Yet, they get arrested and they get thrown in jail. And so it's not the gospel, the good news of Jesus. It's not a prosperity gospel. It's not like, oh, your, your life's going to be full of health and wealth and happiness and bless you. You know, when it's... So it describes these people as being blessed by turning. When we talk of blessings, it's not like, oh, bless you, brother... Like your bank account's going to be full and you're going to have everything you need. I think it's quite almost contrary to that in some ways. The blessing talks of a purity of intention that comes when we follow Jesus with everything that we have. It sets us free from the, the tyranny of living to please others. I think that's one of, as a pastor, it's one of the things that I've seen in people's lives that exhausts people is this um, perpetual like overriding question of like what do other people think of me what are people going to think of me if i say this or if i do this or if i wear this or if i if i eat this or maybe people will think i'm cool maybe people will accept me if i if i dress like this or if i buy this house or if I date this person, or marry that person, or if I cut my hair like this, or whatever, talk about clothes. I just wanted to mention this jacket. Um, it's been hanging on my office door for since last winter. If it's yours, come and get it from me afterwards. <laughs> so I, on Friday, I was kind of chilly in the office, and I was like, oh, there's that jacket on the back of my office door, and I put it on, I was like, oh, it fits me nicely. I think I'll wear it on Sunday. Maybe the people will think I'm cool. I'm sure whoever's jacket it is is quite a cool person. Anyway, we, that is such, such a tourney. It is such a, like a drain on our energy is, is when that's, that consumes our thinking. Man, how can I be cool? How can I be accepted? And when you find acceptance... When you find the acceptance of Jesus Christ, the full acceptance of God the Father through His Son, Jesus Christ, and Him speaking to you and saying, I love you, and I see you as clean, I see you as pure, and you picture yourself on the day when one day you stand before the Father in heaven and you realize that you've left all the baggage behind, that you haven't just like gone on a, on a vacation and you've brought all of the junk with you, when you realize that, man, all of that really is dealt with. All of that is no longer, no longer has a grip on me. That is freedom. We can walk in, we certainly can walk in a measure of that freedom today. 
We don't have to wait until one day when we stand before God and we, we feel bad about the fact that we've, we've sold ourselves to like so many things, that we've allowed things to control us that God never intended to control us, that things that should have been a blessing in our lives became oppressive because we, all we could think about is how, how is this going to make me look? How is this going to appear to others? My wife sometimes uses this thing where she says, man, imagine we were all blind. Imagine none of us could see. How would it change the way we dress and the way we, we do things? Like we'd no longer be caught up in a lot of the, the awkwardness and anxiety that we feel. And I think what God wants to do is not take away our, our, our physical vision. I think what God wants to do is he wants to open our eyes to a spiritual vision where we're able to see beyond this, this world and the limits of this world and allow him to bring us into the fullness of his grace even today. I want to close with a quote by um, Brother Lawrence. And he's a, he's a monk in the 16th century. Um, he, he was a soldier and then... Um, got injured on the battlefield, ended up in a, in, a, in a monastery in Paris. And he was not a monk of high standing. He was not like, you know, one of the important guys. He was a cook. And in his later years, he, he, was, he repaired sandals. That was his deal in life. He was a humble guy. In time, after his death, his writings started emerging through letters that he had written and exchanges that he had with people, things that he had said that other people had written down. And some anonymous author gathered this writing together and, and published this book called um, The Practice of the Presence of God. And this was something that Brother Lawrence was just like totally infatuated with, was the fact that, man, I can experience the presence of God with me today. And he says this, he says, all we have to do is to recognize God as being intimately present within us. Then we may speak directly to him every time we need to ask for help, to know his will in moments of uncertainty, to do whatever he wants us to do in a way that pleases him. We should offer our work to him before we begin and thank him afterward for the privilege of having done it for his, his sake. This continuous conversation should also include praise and loving God incessantly for his infinite goodness and perfection. And that's my desire for each one of you. That's my desire for us as a community, is that we would be a people that are just so aware of the presence of God amongst us, that it brings us into a freedom to do everything that we do for him and not for anyone else, that there'd be a purity in our motives, that there'd be a fullness of understanding of our acceptance, that we, we would have the kind of joy that is expressed in a dog at the dog park where it runs up to other dogs and it's just like so happy to see them. Every time I walk past a dog park, I think of like, man, if only people had that freedom to just express the joy of Christ in everything that they did and in one another. And when I see my cat, I think totally the opposite. <laughs> um, and I wish I could have a dog. But that, that really is my my prayer for us as a community. And yeah, so as we, as we go from this place, I want to encourage you to, 
to not walk away this morning with any junk that might be in your, in your life. If there's stuff that you need to deal with, bring it to God this morning. If there's stuff that you, you want to be free from, this morning, as Peter says, is, this is a time and a place now. Don't delay. Deal with it. Give it to God. He can take it. He can bear it. And he can wash you clean. And you can walk out of here today with that freedom of knowing that your sins are dealt with. So during worship, allow God to speak to you and allow him to work in you in that way.